0: Hi folks, a quick announcement before the show today. First up, events. We've got three events coming up and they're all in person. I think I said earlier in the year that this was going to be the year of the face-to-face catch-up and it certainly seems to be going that way. So, Thursday the 13th of June. This is for you Brisbane friends. So, the Brisbane Take On Board Meetup will be on Thursday the 13th of June. An informal gathering of listeners, program alumni, friends and connections. It's a free event, so come along. Next up, the 18th of July. This is for our Warnable and Great South Coast take on board friends. An event run in conjunction with Leadership Great South Coast and Bernadette Northeast. Governance from fundamentals to advanced practice. Super early bird tickets for this event close on the 10th of June, so get on it. Then the third event, a bit further down the track the 22nd of August. This is for our Sydney friends, a Take On Board meetup in Sydney. Details of all of these events are on my website. There's a link to that in the show notes and I would love to see you at one or all of them. And a second quick announcement, a shout-out to the new Take On Board Kickstarter alumni, Alex Cuthbertson, Anne Wallington, Audrey Umity, Ebony Worth, Emma Bonser, Helen Rizzoli, Julia O'Reilly, Kath Harris, Leah Bramhill, Nisha Amanala, Susan Fitoza, and Yaz Volra. What an incredible group of people. I cannot wait to hear about the next steps that you're taking to the boardroom, and I have no doubt you're all going to make an amazing contribution. Okay, that's it for today. Now, on with the show. <laughs> Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am recording on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. I also acknowledge and respect the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And I extend that respect to any First Nations people we might have here with us today. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Sarah Morse about the Modern Slavery Act and its requirements. First, let me tell you about Sarah. A former New South Wales Young Australian of the Year, Sarah draws on 20 years as a nurse and humanitarian to bring a uniquely global and deeply human perspective to the way humans think, work and behave. Most recently, Sarah worked as a health advisor in a safe house in Spain for survivors of human trafficking. On returning to Australia, Sarah and her husband, Stephen, saw a gap in the market in helping companies comply with the Modern Slavery Act. In her current role as Director of Unchained Solutions, Sarah inspires Australians to be leaders in making an impact on modern slavery. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so good to have you. And to build on what boards need to know about modern slavery, we did a podcast about this oh gosh, probably 18 months ago now, before the Modern Slavery Act had even come into play. So it's really awesome to be able to get this update. However, as always, before we delve into that, we want to delve a bit more into you. So can you tell me a story about young Sarah that tells us a bit about how you got to where you are today?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, my story really starts as a 17-year-old girl growing up on the northern beaches of Sydney and you know until that point in my life uh, I'd I'd grown up in a wonderful family beautiful supporting parents I'd gone to both of my local public schools uh, and so life was pretty good really and uh, I had a really you know great group of friends Um, but when I was 17 I started organizing the 40-hour famine I don't know if you remember that with World Vision and uh, it became an organizer for my school and went to the World Vision conference and I started to hear about poverty and about development and what some of the issues were in the world at that time. So I applied for uh, the 40-hour famine study tour and I won. So as a 17-year-old girl, I went to Africa with three other girls and, and two chaperones and uh, we went to Zimbabwe and Zambia. And that trip, it was only 10 days long, but just changed my life and the trajectory of my life in a massive way. So, you know, being confronted by poverty for the first time, you know, holding children who were starving, you know, seeing children walking five kilometres a day just to get to school, you know, that kind of thing, just really changed my life. And I realised, you know, I could either continue on my life as I as I had known it and you know, just do all the normal things for mm-hmm. for a girl growing up on the northern beaches in Sydney, or I could really use what I had in front of me to try and make a difference in some of those people's lives. And so that's mm-hmm. really what I've done for the last twenty years in different forms uh, in different humanitarian projects around the world. So uh, yeah, so I guess that, yeah, it was it was a life-changing trip and it sounds very cliche, but you know, at that time I just thought, you know, We weren't super rich, you know. I used to think, oh, gosh, you know, if only I could have this or have that, you know, and I I thought that was normal. And then when I went to Africa and realised just the extraordinary amount of wealth that I had access to and the extraordinary amount of opportunity and really realising that poverty, you know, although poverty is, yes, lack of healthcare, lack of food, it also is lack of opportunity. And so realising the responsibility that I had with that as a young 17-year-old girl. So I came back, uh, studied nursing, which I'd planned to do anyway, but it really just changed the trajectory of that to, you know, can I use this for good somewhere in the world?
0: I, I'm just thinking about 17-year-old Sarah going on that trip and that incredible change. And I'm, I'm wondering, we will get onto modern slavery, but I just want to delve into that a wee bit more. So, I'm, So you've gone away, you've had this transformational experience. I'm wondering what happens when you come back and you're Hanging out with your other 17 year old friends that haven't had the same transformational experience. How did that work for you? Were you able to communicate that to people adequately? Part of what I talk about now is reverse culture Mm. shock, actually.
1: And Mm. part of a lot of what we're confronting now with COVID is people going back to the workplace and they feel different. They feel changed in some way. Mm. They go back to their workplace expecting that it's going to be the same as when they left and it's not. So I'm actually talking now to companies about reverse culture shock, but it is very much that feeling of coming back. So the definition of reverse culture shock is returning to the place that you think is normal when you yourself has changed. I had really changed a lot but you know I had the wonderful blessing of meeting my best friend Libby who is still my best friend today we met on the very first day of of uni and, and she had been on basically the same thing with a different organization uh, she'd also been to Zambia and, it, and we were a couple of weeks apart we'd been to sort of similar projects and mm-hmm. you know had lunch in similar places and so on our very first day of uni it was kind of like you know oh I've just got back from Africa she's like, oh my gosh me too you know we had like a three-hour conversation you know, and that really cemented our friendship. And so, mm-hmm. you know, from then on, it was kind of as we progressed through our degree, and then we ended up in second year of nursing. We both went, Libby and I. We went and worked in a healthcare clinic in Zambia for two months, uh, and we worked also in a clinic in India just through her um, family connections and things. So, you know, that was again, you know, more trans transformations. So, I mean, those mm-hmm. those uni years were really quite significant. I was also then. After the World Vision Study Tour, I was selected as the Australian World Vision Youth Ambassador. So I spent a lot of my uni years travelling, <laughs> and you know, had to had to cram a lot of my a lot of my studying. But the World Vision Youth Ambassador program was another extraordinary experience. That was uh, fifty young people from fifty different countries, uh, and we came together and formed an international choir, and we travelled around the world for three months singing about uh, justice and reconciliation and mm-hmm. world peace and things like that. So you know, in that project, those people became my friends. You know, I made friends with a girl from Sarajevo, so this was 1987. so just after the war had ended in Bosnia, you know, the girl from Bosnia became one of my best friends. And so to hear about someone who was basically exactly the same age as me, we liked the same music, we we liked the same clothes, you know, we had a whole lot of things in common, but realising just for the luck of where I happened to have been born and when she happened to have been born, that Mm. our, our teenage years had ended up being completely different fell in love with a Palestinian boy and so you know spent nights with him not all night <laughs> but you know lots of late, late nights up chatting just and you know I think one of the first things I was very naive and one of the very first things I said to him was like just don't get the whole Palestine Israel thing can't you guys just share I don't get it <laughs> and oh, he was like what <laughs> you, know, you know he was born in Bethlehem he grew up fighting for his rights as a as an Arab in Bethlehem and um, as an Arab Christian as a minority even in mm.
0: Bethlehem
1: that was a very very transformative experience as well so yeah they the very some very significant
0: experiences there all through my uni Absolutely. years as well yeah so connecting that now to modern slavery we've got some pretty clear hints in there about what's connected you to this work but how did you get interested in modern
1: slavery? As a 17 year old I guess there were lots of things that I didn't know and didn't understand about the world but early in my 20s I spent two years working in an orphanage in Romania as well I was very naive still then. <laughs> I look back on my on myself now and think, gosh, I just really didn't know a whole lot about how the world worked. So, but it turns out the town that I lived in was the main trafficking hub for uh, human trafficking in Eastern Europe. And what was happening was, in even under our noses, so looking back, I think, gosh, girls were getting trafficked out of the orphanage under our noses and they just said, oh, they just were transferred to a different orphanage mm-hmm. or, you know, I remember one day the teenage girls kind of running up to us and saying they you know these men came in the middle of the night and took one of our friends away you know uh, and we asked about it and they said oh yeah she just got transferred to another orphanage in a different part of the country you know and now I look back at it and I'm like why was that in the middle of the night why were men taking her out of the orphanage in the middle of the night so things like that that at the time I didn't know that I was mm-hmm. it was happening right in front of me uh, mm-hmm. and then so as I grew in my in my humanitarian experience I led a short-term trip also to Athens where we were working with with prostitutes and people working on the street and most of those had been trafficked so that was really my first formal exposure to human Mm. trafficking and then realizing that most of those girls were Romanian and so thinking gosh it's you know those girls that I worked with in that orphanage for sure they're on the streets of Europe somewhere and then when I married my husband Stephen you know, my friends were worried because they thought he was very sort of straighty 180 and I was this like outrageous adventure girl kind of thing. And they thought, oh, you know, you're going to end up being, you know, stuck in Belrose for the rest of your life. But the, the opposite happened. So in our first year of marriage, he just became really convicted about this issue of human trafficking. And he said, I think that we should go and explore this some more. And I actually said, no. I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. No, it's awful. It's horrible. It's dark. It's terrible. i like, I'm not interested. As we explored that further, we realised that that was really the calling on our lives. You know, we sort of, you know, were very uh, spiritual people, and so as we as we prayed, we just sensed that that was you know where where God was leading us, and so we just took a plunge. We quit both of our jobs, uh, and we headed to Spain to explore uh, human trafficking in Europe. So in that time, Stephen wrote his PhD on um, the male demand for for uh, human trafficking in Spain. And I worked in a safe house for survivors of human trafficking. So Mm. that was sort of over a five-year
0: period that we did that. What an incredible story and calling. Shout out to Stephen because it was Stephen who I met first actually out of you and Stephen uh, and he talked about this work and I'm like, oh, that'd be great to talk about on the podcast but I can't talk to you, Stephen, because I'm interviewing all the good women before I get to the good men. So he sent me your way. So thanks, Stephen, for doing that. Um, He is a good man. He's one of the best. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He can be on the list for once I've got through all the good women. <laughs> okay, so there is this, you know, the deep experience that you've got led you to your calling in this in this area. So what is the Modern Slavery Act in Australia and what do boards need to know about it? Let's go there because there, this is all these real-world examples about why boards need to think about it.
1: Let's just start by first of all thinking about what is modern slavery. So Mm. uh, there is a difference in definition between modern slavery and human trafficking. So the work that we did in Europe was specifically around human trafficking. So human trafficking is the illegal movement of people from one place to another against their will for the use of exploitation. So human trafficking is one type of modern slavery. So just a general sort of definition of modern slavery, modern slavery is the commodification of people for the purpose of exploitation and financial gain. So that includes human trafficking, but that's not the only form of modern slavery. So we're thinking about forced labour, domestic servitude, child labour, child soldiers, and things like that, that come in under the banner of modern slavery. So if we're thinking about the statistics, so at the moment it's estimated and the numbers have, have increased during COVID, but we don't have accurate stats on that, but at least 40 million people are currently in a situation of modern slavery worldwide And around 21 million of those are human trafficking. So it is one of the main components of modern slavery, but not the only one. We know that 73% are women and girls and that one in four people in modern slavery are children. And this is globally an industry which is about 150 billion US dollars annually Mm -hmm. in terms of the exploitation of people. And so, yeah, around two thirds of of those people are in forced labour. Yeah, and we know that two-thirds of those, again, are in the Asia-Pacific region. So what Mm -hmm. we're really looking at is a huge population of people on our doorstep who are in our supply chains making and uh, doing the goods and services that we take for granted every day. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of just a background information on modern slavery to think about. It's not just human trafficking. It comprises all of those things as well in terms of when we're thinking about modern slavery so Mm. if we think about the modern slavery act this was an act that was brought into play in 2018 after about a decade of campaigning you know we arrived back in Australia from Spain around the time that the act was just coming into parliament but you know we're super grateful for for the people who for 10 years were just really campaigning to get the modern slavery act brought in and so yeah so when we came back to Australia with this sort of fairly random experience and research Mm -hmm. on, you know, uh, working in in a safe house for survivors of human trafficking and then, you know, Stephen's doctorate on human trafficking and we thought, how are we going to use this experience in Australia? Uh, And that was just when the Modern Slavery Act was coming in. And so we saw a real gap there. In terms of people's understanding of the Modern Slavery Act, but also, first of all, the care factor. So why should we comply? Why does it matter? And I think that's what we really bring is like, we know these people, you know, Mm. it's not just numbers on a page for us. These are real names, real stories, real people that we've worked with who are Mm. in situations of modern slavery. So the Modern Slavery Act was designed to help to bring more um, responsibility and more transparency to Australian companies who are using people in modern slavery in their supply chains and operations.
0: I think sometimes when we talk about modern slavery in Australia, people are like, oh, but, you know, we're in Australia, we have labour laws and that doesn't happen here. Well, A, it does happen here, but B, it's not just what happens here. It's, as you say, it's what's in the supply chains for organisations and you know, we live in a global economy, a global society now. Every organisation has supply chains outside Australia, I would guess. Like, I can't think of one that might just be limited to here that might be free of all of these, these risks.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, During COVID, for example, and we had the issue of toilet paper running out on our shelves, you know, and suddenly people started to think, oh, why is there no toilet paper? It's always been there before. Why is it not there now? You know, Mm -hmm. because I don't know, supply chains aren't things that people think about on a day to day basis. They just go to their shop of choice, they buy their stuff, and they go home. They don't think about where it's come from or who's made it. So I think COVID Mm -hmm. really made that very clear about how interconnected we are and how Mm. extensive our supply chains are and how what's happening to someone in Bangladesh impacts us here in Australia and vice versa as well. So right at the beginning of COVID, we heard coming out of the fashion industry, so 10,000 people lost their jobs overnight in places like Bangladesh. So that was a direct result of companies here cancelling their orders because the shops were closed, they couldn't sell. So they cancelled their orders And that meant that the people who were working in the apparel industry just lost their jobs overnight. Mm -hmm. So I read one story about a lady called Fatima uh, and she had a little four-year-old boy and she was just there working away at her machine for her meagre, already, you know, meagre wages. And then uh, her boss just tapped her on the shoulder and said, don't come back to work tomorrow. She said, well, how am I going to feed my child? What do I do now? You know, and we know then that those vulnerabilities then lead to human trafficking, into the sex industry and for you know for other forms of exploitation that are more dangerous than that Mm -hmm. you know underpaid wage that she had working in that factory and for her child as well so Mm -hmm. you know I have a four-year-old child myself and often when I'm cooking her dinner I think about Fatima and her four-year-old boy and think I wonder what happened to her you know Mm -hmm. what happened to all of those people so that was a direct result of Australian companies who then couldn't sell in the shop fronts in Australia cancelled their orders, you know, back down the supply chain and tens of thousands of people at the end of those supply chains were impacted by Mm. those decisions that were made. Mm. So that's just an example of how interconnected we all
0: are and how what happens in, in our supply chains really matters. Good reminder again about, because there's compliance with the Modern Slavery Act and I'm going to ask you about some of those requirements that what boards need to do in a moment about what compliance means, but there's also thinking beyond that and getting to you know, for those for those organisations that made the decision to stop the supply, you know, shops weren't open. Of course, that was their business decision to do that. But maybe what else could those organisations be doing to build an ecosystem that is one that cares for a global economy and a global society? So there's what we need to do under the Act, but there's also what else could we do to make sure that this is working well for everybody in the supply chain. So let's just start with the requirements though. Can you give us a bit of an overview? What do boards need to think about? Who does it apply to? What do they need to do? What are the steps and so on? And then let's let's talk about what's beyond that as well. Sure. When we're thinking about
1: who has to comply with the Modern Slavery Act, entities in Australia who have more than $100 million uh, gross annual revenue. So that's the, the main criteria. So that could even apply to companies who are overseas, who have part of their entity here in Australia. So $100 million revenue and the New South Wales Act has just recently been amended as well to include state procurement also so Mm. but what a lot of people don't think about is that they might think okay well I'm well under the hundred million dollar revenue but if you're supplying to one of those larger companies you're then part of their supply chain so if they're having to comply what's happening is those large companies are then going down their supply chain and they're saying well can you provide us proof of your And your transparency in your supply chain because they need to know. So while it only technically applies to those entities who have more than $100 million in revenue, it really is within everybody's best interest if anyone is supplying to any of those entities to actually start looking at their compliance process. You know, we have a small business toolkit for you know for people who are way under the threshold, but who are needing to to meet those compliance requirements as well. So that's of, um, who needs to apply, it. and then um, so who needs to comply? Uh, we've sort of developed a, uh, a little outline of the Modern Slavery Act because, you know, as with any new compliance piece, there's pages and pages and pages of legislation, and obviously, you know, people need to read those to comply. But just to give you a little outline, we created what we call the Stop Slavery Model. So S T O P. So S is for stating the risks, T is for take action, O is for outline the consultation process, and P is to propose an improvement plan. And so STOP, so Stop Slavery. So those are the main areas that the Modern Slavery Act is
0: asking people to look at. As I say, there's the requirements under the Act. There is the requirements for 100 million mil and above, but as we've heard, also for smaller organisations because they will end up in the supply chain. But what about this beyond compliance aspect of it? For boards, what does it mean to lead beyond compliance? That's a great question. So that's
1: another thing that we like to talk about at Unchained is leading beyond compliance. Some organizations just like to tick boxes. There's plenty of people who are just submitting their modern slavery statements. And it's very clear that they're just going through and ticking the boxes. So, um, but what's coming through in some of the trends is that even those people who are ticking the boxes aren't ticking them ac- accurately anyway. So some of the mm. things that are missing so far in modern say risk statements are that it's actually not getting signed off by the board or people aren't indicating who is the governing body responsible for signing off mm. there. So a requirement of the act is that it's signed off at board level, but a lot of people, a lot of companies aren't doing that. Secondly, people aren't necessarily getting consultation. So it's about consultation within the entity itself. So how are we consulting up and down within the entity, but also to seek expert advice on how we need to lead beyond compliance. And then also some things that are missing are people are focusing on the risk just in the supply chains, but are failing to look at the the risks and opportunities that are here onshore. And so for me, that's where the leading beyond compliance piece sits, is looking at the risk to our onshore operations as well, but also thinking about the opportunities. So it's not just about identifying risk it's about thinking okay so for example we've worked with a few universities so it's one thing to analyze your supply chain in terms of the goods and services that your university is using but what about you have a body of 60,000 students so what about if you educate all of those students about modern slavery their responsibility you know these are going to be the future leaders of business Mm. these are going to be the future leaders of health of law of all the sectors that are intersecting with the modern slavery act so why not educate as part of your leading beyond compliance piece, you could have a compulsory subject for all 60,000 of Mm. your students that is actually going to think about this and how we respond as consumers but then also as future leaders as well. You know, for example, for for health organisations, thinking through... Not only, again, their supply chains, which um, health supply chains are one of the most opaque industries in Australia. We don't have much transparency at all in health supply chains. We know that the NHS just this week has announced that the whole of the NHS in the UK is going slave free on their supply chains for procurement of, of all of their goods. And that's a result of numbers of decades of people campaigning for that. So I'd like to see Australia heading in that same direction, but we're very far from that at the moment. But not just thinking about our supply chains, but thinking about, you know, there are people in situations of modern slavery and exploitation here in Australia, and the stats from the UK are showing us that 80% of people who are in situations of modern slavery have actually come into contact with a health professional. Mm, So thinking through, like, how do we train our health professionals then? How do we have policies that not only look at the supply chains and operations of our health institutions, but also a policy which says okay somebody comes into emergency department we think that they might be in a situation of modern slavery what do we do you know and 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 the answer is complex I mean it's like domestic violence it's there's no there's no clear cut answer but that's an example of thinking beyond compliance where we're not Mm. just complying with the act we're thinking about what do we have in our hand to do and how can we actually make an impact
0: for good with that Mm. Oh, you've just prompted so many things in my brain because as people in the Take On Board community know, I'm on a health services board. And it's, yeah, that final point there about, you know, our hospital, uh, the Royal Women's Hospital has done a lot of work with other hospitals about strengthening hospitals' response to family violence and doing exactly that, training staff to recognise and knowing what to do and how to have those conversations because we're a women's hospital. If women are pregnant, they mostly need to come into contact with a health service. And it is mostly women who are both subject to family violence and, as you've said, also to modern slavery. So it's a... I don't want to call it an opportunity because that makes it sound quite positive, but it is an opportunity to recognise and deal with. So yeah yeah and if we
1: you know the way I see it is you know
0: yeah risk risk versus
1: opportunity Mm. you know it's opportunity to actually make an impact for good Mm. so yeah yeah, so it is a positive thing in a way although it's a terrible thing to have to think about it is positive to think well we could actually you know just in that example that you gave actually Just think about, okay, how can we expand our our family violence training to include a component on modern slavery? Exactly. Um,
0: And look, it may well be there. I'm going to check now. It may well already be there because my punt is some of the the warning signs are probably similar uh, in a way. So, yeah
1: and then how do we you know move forward with trauma-informed care
0: how do we Mm -hmm. actually
1: you know build that into a policy so it's just a matter of looking at existing policies Mm. and existing trainings and seeing where we can plug those things in as well
0: oh sarah so much gold in this conversation what are the key points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today
1: now, I think there's a number of things that people on boards can think about. You know, some of those are um, the risks and benefits of complying with the Modern Slavery Act. So if we think about the risk um, of non-compliance, you know, we're thinking about reputational risk, legal risk, operational risk, financial risk, continuity of business. But also risk to the people in the supply chain mm. if we if we think about it as global citizens. And then some of the benefits to, to business are you know an increase in profitability. We've actually found that people who have more transparent supply chains and people who deal directly with their suppliers actually increase their profitability over time. So there's a myth out there that compliance with Modern Slavery Act means it's, you know, going to be more expensive. And if we have to pay people a fair wage in Bangladesh, it's going to increase the cost of the product. Um, But actually research has shown and in those NHS examples, there's children in Pakistan who make our surgical equipment, right? So the, Mm. the blades and the Uh, All of the stainless steel surgical equipment mostly comes from Pakistan. So the the factories where the NHS has invested and uh, created that relationship and put those things in place, it's actually, it's impacted those whole communities. Those kids are now going Mm. to school, you know, but it's also decreased the end price, even though they're paying the people a fair wage because the risk has decreased as well. So there's actually benefits to business there as well. It's about protecting and improving our own reputation, mitigating those financial and legal risks, and also boosting staff morale and engagement. So we've seen, you know, in a lot of places, I had someone in a hospital in Melbourne say to me, you know, we didn't realize that by empowering our staff to do this, we're actually giving them a sense of purpose and a view beyond themselves as well. So that's kind of thinking about some of those things and then if there is somebody on a board who is new to the Modern Slavery Act first of all you know have a look at it Um, but secondly when taking action against modern slavery in supply chains and operations there's sort of five main questions that those in governance can ask and I think this is probably a good takeaway is so firstly do we source from countries with weak labour laws or has slavery been found in other sectors? So So there are apps, there are uh, different databases that we can look at to actually map our supply chains and think through, is the country of origin itself a country that has those weak labour laws or is at risk? Uh, Number two, can I encourage uh, government and fellow industry leaders to do more myself or as a board, you know? So that's, again, leading beyond compliance. It's not just what we can do, but how are we actually leading our sphere to lead beyond compliance? Uh, Number three is do our procurement guidelines include anti-slavery policies? And number four, do we have a zero-tolerance policy with our suppliers? And five, do we have a published policy on slavery? Again, looking at supply chains but also looking at a local response. What does it mean in the example of a healthcare institution, for example, what does it mean for our institution to have a local response to people in modern Mm -hmm. slavery in Australia as well? So I think those sort of five questions are good for, you know, somebody on a board to to start thinking about. But thinking through really, you know, do we need to comply? Are we supplying to people who need to comply? What does it mean for us as a board to actually take Mm. this on on a governance level? You know, because we know that culture is shaped from the top, from the board. And Mm. so how can we actually look at that from a governance perspective and just remember that in the end it's not just numbers on a page. You know, in the Mm. end it is real people with real stories and real lives. And so that's a good thing to remember as we go about the process.
0: Absolutely. Even before when you were sharing the story of the supply chain in Bangladesh and Fatima and her four-year-old, like just saying the name makes it real, much more real, I think, for people in that thinking through the impact of some of these things as well. They're not just hypothetical in the ether conversations. They have real-world impacts for real-world people and families. Oh, okay. So, is there a resource that you would like to recommend for the take on board community? Well, if we're talking modern slavery,
1: uh, the Unchained website is a is full of resources right. to go to. So, we're constantly yeah. updating that with current research and engaging with our. Um, with- webinar as well and lots right. of different uh, governance topics so that's uh, www.unchainsolutions.com.au but you know in terms of just in general looking through the sustainable development goals you know looking mm-hmm. through how this actually applies if we're saying as a board we believe in diversity and equality we have a human mm-hmm. rights approach you know we're we're on board with the SDGs and things like that well this is actually a significant part of that so looking a bit broader as well at some of
0: those global resources as well. Fantastic and we'll make sure we put a link to your website to the Unchained Solution website in the show notes so people have got it handily there as well. Sarah thank you that was just such a great conversation that I know board directors will take a lot from both in terms of their requirements and beyond just inverted commas their requirements so thank you so much for sharing your story and your wisdom with the take on board community today
1: thank you yeah it's been a pleasure and really hope that your listeners can can take some of this on board
0: (laughs) that's the the idea right (laughs) (laughs) exactly take on board (laughs) beautiful thank you yeah thanks so much so that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And, well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.